This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's author of Stocks for the Long Run that is just released in the sixth edition. So go check it out. Uh, we have a very special guest for the hour. Uh, we have Jim Bullard, president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. He has been one of our return guests, probably uh, on our show as the most uh, common of our, our Federal Reserve presidents. And I know Professor Siegel is very much looking forward to this conversation. He has a lot of views of inflation and Fed policy. Jim, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Always look forward to the discussion here. <laughs> Professor, um, I know you want to drill into a lot of different questions with, with Jim. Um, give us your current take on the markets, the Fed, how it's creating some, what you see in the bond market, the stock market, yeah, right. what's going on? Well, we had rather low amounts of really important data that this week, the only two I would point to, National Association of Home Builders, uh, fell uh, again quite dramatically. And in fact, uh, since January uh, of this year, the fall in that sentiment index—it's not—it's not an actual home, you know, uh, housing Ooh. starts or or home sales, but in sentiment and tra- and traffic and interest has been actually the sharpest in history outside of the March 2020 pandemic month, which we all understand no one was looking <laughs> for houses then. Um, so uh, there is uh, there there is a big fall off there. We're going to get into uh, housing and pricing um, with with Jim in, in a moment. Next week is, uh, is important. Uh, we get the first look at GDP officially, a little over 2%. And I want to talk with Jim about what's going on in, in, in that uh, market. Um, and also, you know, PCE deflators, end of month uh, housing indices uh, that are uh, that are going to be, I think, uh, going to be very, very important. Um, uh, the big, I think, the big news is the market was headed down until we had a Bloomberg uh, 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 article, well, uh, or, or posting uh, from Nick Timoros, who's been their Fed watcher, who says maybe they're thinking of a pause uh, in December. Maybe they won't even go. 75 basis points in December, maybe only 50, and then look around. <laughs> uh, and that, of course, we're going to really uh, drill into that. But I'd like to start my discussion um, with Jim in the following way. Uh, instead of poking right into that, which uh, I would like to review our last meeting. I, I listened to the podcast. So, Jim, we last talked. I think it was the last week of February of this year. It was just before the quiet period for the March FOMC meeting. Um, And you shared with me some of the forecasts uh, and and one which surprised me quite a bit um, was a very aggressive uh, uh, view on uh, GDP and on employment uh, you had thought unemployment would actually fall below 3%, which we have not seen in peacetime, uh, actually. Um, and uh, you thought that real GDP uh, would be 35 to 4 Now, why we, we're clearly not going to meet those levels by quite a margin, what, what do you think had changed that? did not let that materialize. Well, this is a painful uh, reminder of uh, of the forecasts aren't always right. Um, <laughs> Mine I, either. No, no one yeah. did. But when um, you look back, uh, I, I'm, I would particularly, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot with that because uh, anyone can actually look at that, but this has been one of my biggest puzzles. Um, we job growth has been strong this year. I mean, the payroll data and 
the household data show about 4 million new workers. How then can we have virtually no growth in GDP? As you know, the first yeah. two quarters were, were negative. We're, we're going to get a positive one, I think, for the third quarter. The estimate is between about two, two and a half percent. But even that is not robust. And it looks like if, you know, given what the fourth quarter early estimates are, another two percent, we will have uh, maybe one percent growth in, in GDP. How, how can that be with four million new workers? Yeah. Um, so I was going to say that I don't think my uh, prognostication in February was as wrong as it looks now. Um, and so let me tell you the story on this. I think um, I think you're right. Labor markets remain extremely strong and uh, the unemployment rate has not gone below three percent, but it's three and a half. And I have a hard time seeing unemployment rise very much with all the job openings that we have. We have uh, 1.7 job openings for every unemployed worker. Uh, that's down a little bit, but that's still an uh, unprecedentedly high level of job openings uh, per worker. And I think you know, certainly what you're hearing is that quits are very high, and, and especially at the uh, lower end of the income distribution, workers are able to uh, switch jobs and get a get a better job. So good for them. Uh, but that shows that the the job market is extremely strong. If you look at unemployment insurance claims, uh, they're running uh, below 2017, 2018, 2019 levels for this time of year. And uh, if you look at the if you want to look at a broader measure of labor market performance, you can look at the uh, Kansas City Fed's labor market conditions index, which is at a level that's consistent with the late 1990s, which is often considered the best labor market of the whole post-war uh, U.S. macroeconomic history. So we just got a, a very good labor market. Um, so one thing I, I would say about that is that that gives the Fed some leeway to fight the inflation problem now uh, while we can and hopefully get the inflation rate back uh, to our closer to or back to our 2% target, uh, you know, relatively quickly in macroeconomic terms, relatively quickly. And then we don't have to uh, be messing around with inflation over five years or 10 years. So uh, that's very much the goal that I would have in mind. Now, your question is, well, what about GDP? And uh, I think it's a great question. Uh, according to the official data, GDP growth was negative in the first half of this year when we added 3.2 million jobs. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I think that that will be revised later, uh, but not till much later, some sort of benchmark revision that comes along later. And uh, it won't look quite so bad. But I do think that the slowdown in 2022 has been sharper than I would have imagined coming off the banner year of 2021. I would have thought that the economy would slow more toward trend of 2% as opposed to 1% or 0%. Uh, which it looks like uh, for the whole year, it looks like, at least based on these official numbers, that looks like what it'll be. Now, maybe in some benchmark revision, it will only have slowed to to 2% for the year or 2.5% for the year, and that would sort of make more sense with the, with the robust job market. Um, the productivity numbers for the first half are, of course, terrible because you added a lot of workers, you didn't get any more output, so the productivity is way down. I think that will also get revised up in the future, but uh, if you take it uh, as it is today, it looks like uh, yeah. firms erroneously yeah. added uh, a lot of workers and didn't get any more output out of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, 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 it is the worst... It, uh, productivity numbers um, uh, two consecutive quarters in the 75 years that we have quarterly numbers and and not only worse by a, a minor margin it's it's worse by almost a factor of two it's it's shocking uh, in terms in terms of that um, has has there been any discussion at the Fed the collapse of productivity in in the first two quarters of this unprecedented magnitude and how that 
might change how you you look at the uh, effect of monetary policy? I mean, I I don't remember seeing any papers coming out of it, but there's a lot of papers do come out of the Fed and the and the and the and the, and the districts. Um, has that been has that been discussed? Well, it's certainly a topic uh, for discussion. There, are, there are some analyses around. I would say that the general tenor is that there, there are some plausible stories that you could tell. I don't think you could get productivity to decline quite this much. But, um, you know, if workers are switching jobs all the time, that means the firms are training new workers uh, all the time, and that training cost could be very high. And I think people probably had experience just in their own personal lives with uh, with uh, people who are relatively new on the job and, and are just learning the job and probably aren't that productive immediately. They'll be more productive later on. Um, so that's one story is that uh, uh, your the churn is means that there's a lot of training going on. Another story is there's some kind of labor hoarding going on where firms are, because the labor market is so hot, the uh, firms are fearful of losing workers. So they're keeping workers, even ones that maybe aren't uh, as productive as they would like, but they keep them anyway uh, because they, the replacement cost would be uh, really quite high. And so it's it might make sense to, to hold on to workers in this environment. So... Uh, but I don't really know if either one of those stories holds. Water. And and the work from home story that yeah. are they really working the hours when they work yeah. for home? They're supposed to be working eight hours. Maybe they're working six hours. Um, uh, that, yeah. That's another hypothesis. The, the so-called quiet quitting. You know, I'm not. You know, I can always get a new job. I'm not that interested in this job. I'll, I'll, you know, and when I'm home, who can monitor me exactly what I'm doing? But. Um, I, I asked this question because if there is a bounce back to more normal levels, I mean, that w should put a downward pressure on, on prices in the future, should it not? I mean, more output. Yeah. Uh, of course, the productivity numbers are notoriously volatile. Um, but for now, I would say we're still in the low productivity growth regime uh, that we've been in for quite some time now. And I'm hopeful that we'll get a switch to a higher productivity growth regime at some point you would think that the pandemic forced us to experiment with new technology uh the hot the hot labor market is actually causing uh substitution of capital for labor uh and so there are lots of reasons to think that you might see higher productivity going forward but you're not certainly not seeing it so far this year i'm very disappointed i want, I want to get back uh, you know I, uh, to the labor market you mentioned it um, uh, it's been mentioned uh, by, by Jay Powell. Uh, uh, and I want to contrast it because I, I was reading his statements in the past about the labor market. Uh, and this is before the pandemic, actually before the Senate Banking Committee in July of 2019. Uh, he stated the relation between slack in the economy or unemployment and inflation, which of course we used to call, we still call the Phillips curve, uh, was strong at one time, perhaps 50 years ago, but it has gone away. Yet he seems to, uh, it seems like the Phillips curve is totally resurrected by uh, Jay and Powell and, and the Fed as one of the major reasons why they believe that uh, rates have to continue um, to go up. Has it, has that been, um, it, it certainly sounds like that's one of your reasons for uh, being relatively hawkish on the rates. Well, I, I no, I don't think the Phillips curve uh, evidence has changed uh, as far as I know over the last 20 years. Uh, it's been a very flat Phillips curve. So generally speaking, you shouldn't expect very much disinflationary pressure to come, even if the labor market uh, sort of returns to mean uh, here over the next year or more. Um, Instead, I, I have a different idea about what the disinflationary process will look like. Uh, I would think it will occur more on the product side of the market where uh, businesses worry that if they raise prices too aggressively, they will lose market share. And uh, so there'll be a 
race to um, uh, be the low-cost provider and the firm that can provide the good or service uh, without increasing their prices nearly as much and instead improving productivity and doing other things. Uh, this is my interpretation of what happened during the 1980s disinflation, whereas you had uh, lower cost providers sweep into the market and uh, firms that weren't agile enough or were too prone to raise prices, they got their market share taken away from them. And when that, when that happens in business, uh, you lose market share uh, for a long time or maybe permanently, and it might even put you out of business altogether. And I think that did happen in the 80s. Uh, and Walmart would be the, the sort of the, the main example or the, the most prominent example. But I think this happened sort of across the board. You had a lot of warehouse-type stores come in and other things that they thought about how to provide uh, the goods at, at much lower prices, and, and this is a way to beat inflation. So uh, that's the process that I'd like to see get started. It doesn't necessarily have uh, that much to do with labor markets per se. Uh, you're saying your hawkishness is you don't want to necessarily cool the labor market so that layoffs are stopped wages which stop pressure on prices, because that sort of sounds like what a number of Fed officials, and including the chairman, uh, seem to be implying. Are, are you saying that that's not a route that you uh, think the, the Fed, the, these these higher rates are going to work through? Yeah, that's that's right. I don't, I mean, Again, it's hard to see with this hot of a labor market. Uh, certainly, it'll cool some, but it'll cool probably more toward the, uh, you know, uh, a more normal labor market. You wouldn't expect it to, you know, three and a half percent unemployment is not the most uh, common number that you would have seen in the post-war era. So probably that'll go up, but that'll be. Uh, returning to a more normal labor market, not necessarily, uh, you know, a recessionary one. And and so, but then you say, well, how are you going to get the disinflation? And I'm yeah. saying it will come through the product side of the market. And, but how does uh, higher interest rates? I mean, you're you you you've been on record as the the next two seventy five seventy five, you know, bringing the rates to five percent or so. I mean, how does that aid the process you're talking about yeah i think uh you have to have credibility with businesses that the future inflation will be uh lower than it is today or has been over the last year and then that's what will uh cause them to worry about raising uh their prices so they'll ratchet down they'll they'll probably raise their prices but somewhat less than their uh their competitor and this process will ratchet you down until you meet the inflation expectation of 2%. So uh, I think that process is very real and tangible and is what caused the disinflation in the 80s. And the, some of the business people I've, I've talked to have, have said that the way the market has reacted and the Fed has talked about it has, you know, that 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 feeling of fighting inflation has that point has been made and are concerned about going too far in the other direction. If we, you know, take a look as as uh, as as the Fed has said, at the, the difference between the tips yields and the standard yields, and even the inflation expectations. And there was a little tick tick up on the Michigan numbers, but they they are very uh, well contained. Um, uh, do you think that why why do you think five percent Given what the market has responded and the disinflation in the sensitive markets from commodities, the housing to to so many of the others uh, has not put an explanation mark about that, you know, this inflation um, is over. Uh, well, it's it's not over today, uh, but we're hoping to get the disinflationary process going in 2023. And I think if we get going in the right direction, you will see this process work out the way I've described it. Um, I think, you know, wage price spirals are often talked about. To me, that's an older uh, theory. And, and I think that 
uh, you know, if you had a high inflation economy, you would expect the general price level and the nominal wages to roughly go up in tandem. Uh, but that wouldn't be the cause of the inflation. The cause of the inflation is the monetary policy. So um, I think that has long been confused in the profession and in the literature that, uh, you know, just because you can identify that in some high inflation economies, that doesn't mean that that's really what's causing uh, the inflation. To get the uh, inflation down, you have to have a great central bank policy that's oriented toward uh, the inflation target. And once you have that, uh, I think the 90s and 2000s showed that uh, most countries around the world adopted inflation targeting. And lo and behold, uh, inflation in most places came very close to the inflation target and inflation variability is much lower during that period. So once again, I think mm -hmm. if we focus on the right responsibility for inflation, then we'll, we'll be able to attain it. Professor, let I me mean, just quickly yeah. reintroduce yeah. who we're talking to here. We're talking with Jim Bullard, president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. We've got Professor Jeremy Siegel, who has been harsh on the trail, saying the inflation is coming down. Professor, I'm going to let you keep along your questioning, not to interrupt you there, but just want to introduce our guest, President Bullard. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, by the way, I'm very pleased, uh, Jim, that you agree with me that the wage part is not, in fact, as we saw, wages are actually lagging inflation, so it's hard to think of them as a cost-push factor right now. But let's let's talk about a point, and and actually, I listened back to our podcast uh, uh, in late February, and um, I, I actually had made this point before, but I think it's more important right now. I am very concerned about the quality of the statistics particularly the inflation statistics, and in particular, the housing sector of it. Um, eight months ago, when we had our last interview, um, I mentioned that all the indexes of house prices, uh, government and private, all the uh, indexes of rental rates were running way above the shelter component, either owner-occupied rent or, or pure rentals, uh, that was found in the CPI because of the lag way the Bureau of Labor Statistics enters those uh, data into it. I said, as a result, we had a lot more inflation in 2021 than the official statistics show, and I believe a lot less uh, inflation now and 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 prospectively, and I'll I'll make a point to that to to saying you know we saw in in the last CPI you know which so rattled the market when the core was above expectation we saw a seven tenths of a percentage point uh, increase in uh, the uh, the housing component while at the same time. Uh, all the official indices of housing prices are going down and of rental prices going down. I don't mean year over year, but of the sensitive rental indices have reached their peak in March and April and are going down. Uh, I think that because of the lag way that the government puts it in, that housing component uh, is going to keep on adding a lot to the core that's a real phantom inflation. Uh, and it concerns me that if, you know, you just look at that core rate and say, oh, my God, we're not making progress. Let's keep on hiking. Uh, the Fed is going to go way too far in that uh, situation. We have now the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland has written a paper to address it. Um, there has been now an increasing concern about that. I'm wondering, has there been discussion at the Fed about the housing component and how it might not be representing what is actually happening on the ground in housing? Yeah, I think this is uh, an important topic and, you know, you're right to point it out. And uh, but uh, we can look at uh, sort of new rentals uh, and other information and try to make adjustments uh, for this. And, and if, I think if we thought that it was uh, causing a major distortion in the perception of inflation, then that would be 
definitely information that we'd want to take on board. Um, the uh, there are other ways to do this or other uh, measures like the median or the Dallas Fed trim mean, uh, which just looks at the center of the price change uh, distribution. Uh, but the rental part would still be in there as part of the uh, part of the calculation. So, uh, you know, you could look at that and look at that excluding the rentals or something like that. Um, but there are many ways to cut the data, and we certainly do cut the data in, in all those different ways. Right. I mean, the, you know, just uh, for example, uh, I looked at the CPI since March of 2020, uh, the Case-Shiller Index, and we're going to get, you know, next Tuesday, we're going to get another update, uh, which is, by the way, began to go down. Uh, has has the in, the government index on housing um, went up 40 percent from March 2020 when the pandemic began to the spring of this year, um, the two-year period. Uh, rental indices, sensitive Zillow rental indices, apartment list, and these are, are very well-regarded indices, have gone up 30 to 35 percent. The shelter component of the CPI has gone up 11 percent. Um, it, it never matched, um, but it's now in catch-up mode because they distribute down six to 12 months back. It's going to continue accelerating into the future at the same time these other two indices are going down. And, and uh, it, it really makes a big difference. I mean, Jason Furman um, uh, uh, and, and we actually have also uh, done a calculation using uh, these rental indexes that uh, are, are on, you know, that are online and inflation actually on a three month annualized basis, which is one of the measures that actually Jay Powell uh, has quoted as what uh, as what he, he looks at core inflation annualized three months actually uh, hit 16 percent in the first half of 2021. Uh, now the official rate was less than one third of that. Um, one thinks that had we had more current, we might have reacted a lot sooner to these inflationary pressures. But I'm worried now that it's coming in over the next 12 months, might there be an overreaction in the other direction? Yeah, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to these measurement issues, and I, I do think that uh, we have to use all our talent and prowess to try to uh, get a good sense of uh, where prices really are and where they're really going. I would say, though, that, uh, you know, you can't, you can't say I'm going to um, take the lagged effect on board when it's keeping inflation low, and I'm going to throw the lagged effect out when it's keeping inflation high. Uh, those kinds of arguments tend to erode Fed credibility uh, and, you know, just the general practice of throwing out a lot of prices that people are actually paying is, generally speaking, not good for central bank uh, credibility. So I think, you know, the overall uh, price uh, inflation targeting um, uh, of the Federal Reserve is really based on headline PCE inflation. It's headline PCE inflation that we want to average 2% over time. And so ultimately, that's what we really have to look at and judge ourselves on. But uh, I agree that for, to try to get the short-term movements in the data, you may want to uh, cut the data in various ways. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to throw out lag. I'm, I'm trying to use current data all the time yeah and, so this would be an do, argument and they that, do that in almost every other sector of uh of that and and yet they have now you know the, the, their their process of getting housing in which you know had such a boom in prices and rentals had such a boom in prices uh, and now case shower is is going down i mean it seems strange we're going to get next month probably seven tenths increase in shelter when case shower is going down when the uh, federal housing index is going down when the apartments uh, list indicator is going down all of them are going down and yet core pce or regular pc it doesn't matter and it doesn't matter whether you use trimmed or any of those will still go up and they'll go up for months 
to come. And then the Fed says, oh, our or our our method, we're not it's not working when, in fact, on all the sensitive commodities, what has already been tightened is working quite dramatically. Um, um, and if we both agree that we don't want to get it through the wage issue, um, what, why do we need then having risen, raised the real rate of interest? You know, tips have gone up 250 basis points, the most in history. Why, why do we need to continue to increase the rate? Uh, I think, I think that I think that inflation has basically stopped. Um, well, uh, I think you'd get some argument on that, uh, whether inflation's actually stopped here. There'd be some risk that it would go still higher, and there'd be probably more probability that it's going to come down. So I hope it I hope it does come down. I hope we have a disinflationary year in 2023. I think for the policy rate, uh, I've argued that what we want to do is get to a level of the policy rate that puts meaningful downward pressure on inflation, and then hopefully we get this disinflationary process going, and then we can put this whole episode uh, behind us eventually. So what would that, I think the committee has to come to some judgment about what that uh level of the policy rate would be that would put meaningful downward pressure on inflation for the environment that we have. And then uh, at that point, you can return, in my words, to what I would call ordinary monetary policy. So now you've, you've come off zero, you've gone to this much higher level of the policy rate. But then once you're at the right level, then you can just make minor adjustments at that point, either to maybe stay where you are, or maybe go a little bit higher based on incoming data and how, you know, shocks that come in and so on. So, um, you know, what would this what would this level be? And I do have a calculation about this that I did at the uh, conference at Stanford in May. Uh, on you know on Taylor rules and being behind the curve and at that time I said well let's do the most general generous uh, uh, Taylor rule that we can so a generous Taylor rule would be that we'll, we'll make all the assumptions in the way that call for a relatively uh, low level of the policy rate so you could put a real interest rate in there that's relatively low. I put a minus one half percent for that, uh, which is the pre-pandemic level. Uh, you could put a inflation gap in there that's relatively small. Uh, I, I took the Dallas Fed trim mean minus two percent. You could put a coefficient on inflation that's relatively small. I put 1.25. Um, so all these things are very generous. And then for the output gap, you don't worry about that term put a zero on that. So this gives you, uh, at that time, gave us a three and a half as a place to go. And and we were starting from close to zero. So that's a lot of rate increases, but it kind of gets you to some neighborhood of the right level uh, to fight inflation. Now, since May, if you do that same calculation, you probably added at least 100 basis points on that. So that's why uh, people are talking more about four, four and a half, uh, 4.75 markets are even up at 5%. So, um, you know, where the committee will come down on this judgment about where you need to be to, uh, to put meaningful downward pressure on inflation. I think that's a, a key part of the policy debate in the next two meetings. Professor, we need to take a short break, but this is a good point to stop. Professor says inflation has stopped. President Bullard has said inflation might need to, we might still need higher rates. We're going to keep talking about these issues on the second half. We have President Jim Bullard from the St. Louis Fed for the hour. We have Jeremy Siegel from the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. And the professor has said inflation has stopped. Uh, the professor has has commented uh, and in the sixth edition of Stocks for the Long Run has a big chapter on the pandemic and the money supply creating inflation. Professor I'll let you make some opening comments on your view of, of what happened with the money supply, what the Fed is saying on the money supply that so upsets you, and what does it say today? Yeah, let me uh, qualify a little bit when I say inflation has stopped. 
uh, I consider the housing market now in a downtrend and offsetting other increases uh, that will still appear in the service sector. I don't mean everything has stopped going up, but I, I would say on the ground housing prices, if we actually have the decline uh, in them, uh, would basically offset m most, if not all, of the rising prices uh, that we have. And that's what let me not not let me say how inflation has stopped. Someone's going to bring up that oh yeah but this is going up and that's going up so obviously we're talking about an average with the, with a declining housing market which i think is going to be the second most serious decline in housing prices that we are facing uh since the great financial crisis but getting back um i remember last time jim you said i don't think i've ever talked about the money supply so much with anyone as they did with me <laughs> and uh again having been at the university of chicago and we talking about the st louis fed being uh, one of the big researchers in conjunction with money supply for so many years in the 60s and 70s and, and early 80s. Um, just, just to summarize, um, from March of 2000 to March, and this was it. Uh, there were, the interesting thing is right after uh, our last interview, things turned around. But until March of 2022, that 24-month period, uh, the M2 money supply, which I consider, as Milton Friedman did, as the most important, uh, was up by 40%. Interestingly enough, the Case-Shiller home price index was up by 40%. I'm not saying necessarily it's you know, exactly the the, uh, the the causal, but that was up by, by 40%. Since we last discussed this issue, not only has the money supply gone to a screeching stop, it has actually declined, not much, but it is the sharpest deceleration um, that we've had in post-World War II history. Um, that was one of uh, the factors that in June and July, I, after being probably the biggest inflation hawk around, began to turn cautious um, and saying, watch out. I mean, we don't want, you know, the car's going 120 miles an hour, maybe in a 70 zone. Don't slam on the brakes and go through the windshield um, on that. Um, uh, by the way, we we next Tuesday, we're uh, on the fourth Tuesday of every month. We get the monthly money supply. We get hints of it uh, because we get weekly deposit data. And by the way, it's being very weak this month, I think unless some of the other factors really start offsetting it, uh, we're going to have a, another decline uh, that we're going to show next uh, Tuesday uh, for the month of September. Uh, there is a little bit of a lag in that in that data. Um, but that sharp deceleration and slowdown um, concerns me, uh, Jim. Does it concern you? Uh, is this one of, and it is one of the many factors that tell me how tight the Fed has been, the dollar, the money supply growth, the the collapse of commodity prices, uh, obviously stock prices, widening of yields. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Um, the Fed's tight talk and the market uh, has has really tightened things up. Your comments on what's going on with the money supply? So um, I think that uh, the slowdown in money growth is a uh, a positive factor if you're trying to get inflation down. Um, and so that part, you know, you probably don't want a 40% growth rate on that. It hasn't been tightly tied to, uh, uh, you know, PC inflation. Um, so it's hard to say that that's a, a tight correlation, but nevertheless, uh, I think it's a factor that suggests that we've got the right kind of policy that will bring inflation lower. Um, your comments about, um, let's say, equities uh, being off this year and and other factors, I think I'm sympathetic to that because I think that that shows that uh, in the modern economy, a lot of the effects of tighter monetary policy are felt pretty contemporaneously with the policy and not so much with the, the long and variable lags that Friedman would have emphasized. And when Friedman was talking about long and variable lags, it was about money growth and, and the real economy. And so here we're talking about uh, 
more of an interest rate based uh, policy and the economy. And I think a more active and uh, financial sector that uh, and that transmits uh, the policy much faster than it would have been transmitted uh, in the 50s or 60s. And uh, because of that, I think you, you could make a case that it's the and also markets anticipate what the Fed is going to do. So it's not just that you raised we started raising a policy rate in March. It's that uh, markets anticipated even before that. Uh, and even today are anticipating uh, moves that are priced in, you know, for the rest of this year. So um, it does some of the tightening for you. As, yes, as you uh, you're getting some of the work is done ahead of time uh, yeah. for you. And so. Uh, I'm sympathetic to that. Now, um, uh, you know, I've, in other contexts, though, I've de-emphasized equity pricing as a measure of financial stress. It seems to me if you're going to raise rates uh, this aggressively, especially, then um, uh, investors are going to have to discount the future at a higher rate, and that's going to uh, that's going to mean that the corporate uh, sector stream of profits is worth less than you otherwise would have thought. And so uh, it seems natural to me that you'd see the decline in equity prices, but I wouldn't call that financial stress. Uh, the St. Louis Fed actually has a financial stress index. That financial stress index was at a peak in 2008. It also peaked again in March and April of 2020. Uh, but today, that index is uh, very low. So I don't think that this has been a case where the what I would call financial stress is high, just because you had to have a lot of repricing in markets uh, to handle the uh, more aggressive Fed policy. So maybe a little bit of a subtle difference on how I, I would interpret that. Yeah. Um, and and what, what discourages me also, I... I uh, uh, and, and I agree. I think it works faster and it certainly works through the financial markets faster. But, you know, the real tightening began, although showing some anticipation in the financial markets, but in March, uh, we, we've had basically six, seven months. And I hear all the time and uh, even hints by, by some of the Fed governors and officials, it's not working yet. I mean, um, and, and they're talking about the core. Well, Monetary policy doesn't work on the core in five or six months. Uh, I mean, I think this this pessimism, I, the the Fed not policy not working, I think is way overblown. Don't don't. I mean, it it is working. Where we see it in the goods market dramatically, uh, the 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 services market uh, um, is lag, and particularly with the way the housing is done, as I mentioned, extraordinarily lag. Uh, so that we we don't see it, but um, we're we're getting so many signs of that disinflation. I mean, why is there such pessimism after six months uh, that are uh, people blaming, you know, saying the Fed's policy not working? I I'm not sure there's pessimism. I I the most financial markets and uh, the dot plot and policymakers are predicting that 2023 will be a disinflationary year. So. Um, it seems, if if anything, they're sort of overly optimistic about how much disinflation will but get. But why would you then have to continue to raise rates so? Because you have to get you have to get to the right level of the policy rate, and markets are saying. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't go by what markets are saying, but the but markets have already priced in the uh, the rate hikes that were in the dot plot in September, um, and so now you just. All you're doing is following through on that. But as far as the actual policy move, it's probably already been made um, because markets uh, anticipated that. So one thing you can do is look at the two-year yield as a measure of not just uh, where the policy rate is today, but where it's expected to be in the future. And the two-year rate started to move off very low levels in uh, October, November of last year. So if you want to date the time of the uh, surprise or the shock in, um, in monetary policy, I would date it from there. And if you do it that way, then we're already a year into this. So we, have, we should be seeing uh, effects right around now. 
and coming into the first half of 2023. So if you think of it that way, I think it would make uh, the timing uh, would make a lot of sense. And that seems to be consistent with what I've read in the literature about, you know, the uh, from the date of the shock to the date of the peak effect would be 12 months to 18 months or something like that. Uh, James, I remember you saying a number of years ago, um, you can fool me once, you can fool me twice. You're not going to fool me three times. Um, I get real worried when I see an inverted yield curve. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, and I get worried when I see an inverted yield curve. And we see an inverted yield curve. Are you worried? Yeah, I think. I think this is a great question. I do think that part of the inversion right now is a nominal inversion uh, where uh, markets are expecting inflation near term, but they're not expecting uh, inflation medium term. And because of that effect all by itself, you're getting uh, some inversion from that. So in a way, that part of the inversion would be a positive sign. Uh, that the Fed's got the right policy and you are going to get inflation down uh, in a reasonable uh, time frame. Now, there is also some real inversion, uh, and that suggests that, um, uh, you know, that uh, the, the normal properties of the inverted yield curve would also be operative here. And so that markets are, are you know, predicting slower uh, or possibly negative uh, growth in the future. I have taken that very seriously in the past, but um, but I do think that uh, this nominal part is special to this particular inversion uh, that wouldn't be there at most of the points in the last 25 or 30 years, because over that period you had uh, low and stable inflation, and so uh, uh, you know when the yield curve was inverted, it was a real inversion. It really was predicting slower or negative growth in the future. And that's one reason why I, I think, although I understand that the market is now anticipating, and well, what do we have on Fed funds rate in February, you know, near five, I guess, at this particular juncture, I think that is too high because I see that inversion and because I see so many, much of the economy uh, actually um, going down uh, at this point. I, I do want to say, um, I, I want to say to our listeners uh, that, that, uh, that Jim and I had a in, little interesting discussion during the break um, uh, that our star, which is what is the real short-term interest rate that that is the natural rate of interest. Um, um, he did calculations putting it at minus 0.5%, which is uh, exactly where I would put it. But that is much lower than the Fed's dot plot, is it not? The Fed says uh, a plus one half percent um, because yeah. and uh, I think it is lower. And what, what what is the bottom line getting away from technical talk? is that we're in restrictive territory now. Some people say, oh, we're not, but I think we are, uh, and, and certainly projected to be very, very soon in a matter of months in quite restricted territory. The lower that natural rate is, the more the rates that we see there on the board are, are restrictive. Is, is that not the case? Okay, but you should use uh, some kind of Taylor rule and you can put in whatever parameters you want, but you should use some kind of Taylor rule to judge whether we've got the right level of the policy rate. And that's what my Stanford talk did. And, and, uh, if you updated that, you would get something in the four high 4% range for the nominal, uh, federal funds rate. So I do think the committee's about right here, but the market However, other people, five. other Why people market would, well into the fives then, um, uh, it's then the Maybe market is jumping ahead of what you think is appropriate. Is that not the case? Well, arguably, what I did was a minimal case. It was uh, because that I made generous assumptions about um, the real rate, about the which inflation gap you wanted to look at. That calculation is dominated by that inflation gap. 
So if you're going to put something like a headline uh, inflation rate in there and and subtract 2%, and that's your inflation gap, then you're going to get a much higher recommended policy rate out of your Taylor rule. Now, whether that's the right thing to do, I don't know. Uh, but I argued for this minimal uh, sort of argument that this is a, a minimal level that you have to get to to be able to say with a straight face, we're putting meaningful downward pressure on inflation that is appropriate for this very high inflation that we're seeing. Okay. Oh, just on, on a mention, you, uh, we we have a negative uh, GDP gap, right? And in, in, in that GDP is actually growing less than the long run normal. Yeah. Well, again, now there would be another area where you might say, I want to use the unemployment gap. And, the unemployment <laughs> and that be, goes back to why are these two measures so disconnected uh, from where we are? I know we're we're reaching the end. I, as you look back on the last two years, listen, we all know what want, been different. Everyone said, what what do you think the Fed? Did, you were one of the early people, and I we really respect you for that. What? Why? What? Why did the Fed delay so long? As you look back over two years, what were the factors that caused the big delay in tightening? Uh, a lot of people have asked me where the inflation came from, and I, I think the the best uh, view of this is to just step back and acknowledge that if you look across many different times and places, wars are associated with inflation. And why are wars associated with inflation? It's because the war is a social crisis and the uh, government uh, borrows money to fund the war. They don't ask too many questions about how they're going to pay for it in the future. And they uh, ask the central bank to provide low interest rates for the war effort. And this looks a lot, now it certainly happens during a major war, but it also uh, I think happened during the pandemic. The pandemic isn't a war per se, but it's uh, it's a social crisis and a war against the virus. So uh, this is a, exactly I think what was done in in uh, in this episode, and we've got an inflationary hangover from this process. Another f- facet of this is that we only the, have fifteen. We only have fifteen seconds. Wrap up. So thank President Jim Bullard, Jeremy Siegel, a fascinating conversation. Appreciate you coming on, Jim, as always. Listen to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. We'll hope to have Jim on again, continue the conversation over time on the policies. Professor, thank you for your comments. Dion, have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.